Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Murder Mile. On Thursday the 6th of May at 5.40am, as Albert Stamp strode down Finsborough Road towards his place of work at Earl's Court Station, he spotted the stocking defeat of a crumpled body dumped upon the stone steps. Found outside of a five-storey, white-stone terrace at 17 Finsborough Road, it was a place that 26-year-old Winifred Virginia Mulholland didn't belong. And no one knew how she had got there. But here lay her folded and broken body on the basement steps, amongst the household waste and refuse bins. The post-mortem confirmed several vital details about Virginia's death. She'd initially been attacked a few days prior, but she hadn't died until a few hours before her body was found, meaning this semi-conscious or fully comatose lady had lain motionless for at least three days. Sustaining four injuries to her head and face, death had occurred slowly and painfully, having been struck with a heavy blunt object, later discovered to be a flat iron weighing close to a kilo, which shattered her skull, lacerated her brain, and caused extensive hemorrhages, paralysis, and unconsciousness. And possibly, while she was collapsed, her attacker had struck her three times across the cheeks with a hammer. Once dead, she was dragged a short distance from where she had lain for three days. With her clothes, a red dress, a white blouse and a rabbit's fur coat, spattered with long lines of blood droplets, which had splashed at the moment of impact from her bloodied head and face. And although a handbag containing a purse, an ID and a red diary was near, her red-heeled slingback shoes were missing. With her secondary injuries, 
fractures to her lower left femur and the fifth cervical vertebrae of her neck, as well as a dislocated hip and left knee, all occurring in the early stages of decomposition. With no fresh blood found under her body, although she hadn't died on the stone steps, at some point she had either fallen or had been dropped from a height of 15 feet. The police initially assumed that she'd been murdered elsewhere and dumped here. As no killer would be so bold, brazen and even bonkers as to dump a murder victim's body outside of their own home. But as the police swarmed and the neighbours congregated, along this street, every curtain was open, every house light was on, and every tenant was gossiping ten to the dozen. Except one. The first floor flat at 17 Finsborough Road was in complete darkness. With the curtains drawn, the French windows shut, and its short, stubby balcony being just a 15 feet drop from where her body was dumped. At 6.40am, having arrived and assessed the scene, Detective Inspector Albert Webb made his way to the first floor flat, rented to George Civil Epton, a 41-year-old engineer and widower who lived alone. Detective Inspector Webb was a seasoned investigator, but even he would be unsettled by George's lack of empathy and a demeanour described as chilly. I gained entrance to the bedroom and I saw a man who was small, thin, thick-necked, with pointy ears and piercing dark eyes. With a thin parting to his hair and a small stubby moustache, he wore a grey jacket and mismatched trousers. Without prompting, George asked, I suppose you'll hear about the murder. The DI pointedly posed, What murder? As if to taunt him into a confession. At which he replied, The one outside. Having claimed that he had heard the neighbours gossiping, but that he hadn't gone down to look or even to help. At which DI Webb said, I'm going to have a look around. You'd better join me. Which he did. It was an odd flat, as being badly subdivided, you couldn't enter the front room via the bedroom without accessing the landing. The front room was barely 17 feet square, with a linoleum rug on the floor a single sofa in front of a log fire, and a stone mantelpiece on which lay some tatty ornaments in no discernible order, such as a clock, an empty medicine bottle, a small statue, and two frameless photographs of his dead wife. With the fire still warm but out, amongst the charred remains of the kindling and coal, 
lay a few bits of detritus. Later confirmed as a pair of black slingback toeless shoes with red heels in Virginia size. His excuse was, they're my wife's shoes. I bought them seven months ago. Apparently as a present, purchased shortly before she entered the hospital for terminal tuberculosis. The DI then headed to the balcony, which overlooked the street. And being an L-shaped balcony, with a larger section accessed by a right French window, being seven foot square with a small cast iron railing surrounding it, Virginia's body lay directly under this window, 15 feet to the stone steps below. The French windows were fastened, the DI would state. I noticed bloodstains on the balcony floor and broken pieces of a costume clip. Blood which was group A, the same as the victims, with the matching parts of the broken costume clip found on the balcony and under the body. The DI asked George, How did these bloodstains get here? Pointing to several dark flaky patches of dried blood later determined to be human. To which George replied, That's not blood, it's dirt. But knowing how to read a suspect, D.I. Webb left a long and blistering silence, which although only a minute or two long, felt like a lifetime for George. Keen to fill the void, George stammered, It might be blood. My wife died of TB. She used to spit blood. Which wasn't a lie. But having died three months earlier, the recently used cloths found in the scullery at the rear of the landing suggested that a partial, if pointless, cleanup of the crime scene had occurred. Returning to the bedroom, the DI would state, I noticed bloodstains on the wooden foot of the bed, and I said, What's that? Pointing to the dark flaky pool of blood, George retorted, That's been there a long time. It looks like red ink. To say that the DI didn't believe his lies would be an understatement. As still wearing the same clothes he was wearing on the Sunday before. His grey jacket and his mismatched trousers were heavily stained with Group A blood. And upon closer inspection, a few hairs from the rabbit's hair fur coat was found. When asked why his clothes were bloodstained, George replied, I've been having a lot of nosebleeds. Enough was enough for Detective Inspector Webb. And at a little after 8am, barely an hour since he had arrived at the scene, he would state, I'm not satisfied with your answers, 
as to why there were bloodstains in your flat. And you will be taken to Chelsea Police Station while I make further inquiries. And with that, George Epton was cautioned and driven away. On the surface, he didn't seem like a crazed killer or sexual sadist. George Cyril Epton was born on the 22nd of April 1903 in Kirkstead, Lincolnshire. As one of three children to George, a farm wagoner, and Harriet, a housewife. Aged 13, he left school and spent two years as a butcher's boy. Age 15, for six years, he worked as a casting packer. And although he told the police he'd served in the army for five years, he never enlisted. In fact, until he was 27 years old, he drove a tractor at Bardsley's farm in Lincoln. In 1930, George married Doris, a local girl, and the two had a child. But unable to cope with his cruelty and with the law making it impossible for her to divorce him. In 1932, Doris fled to Great Yarmouth and meeting a good man who raised their child as his own, she cut all ties to George. He had two convictions committed when he first moved to London. On the 20th of February 1934, he was bound over for 12 months for being a suspected person and caught a second time on the 31st of August 1935. He was sentenced to two months hard labour for picking up prostitutes. A year later, having hidden the fact that he was still married to Doris, he bigamously married 27-year-old Gertrude Bloomfield and they lived as man and wife until the outbreak of the Second World War. In September 1943, Mr. and Mrs. George and Gertrude Epton, as they were known, moved into Flat C on the first floor of 17 Finsborough Road. And over the five years that they lived there, they kept themselves to themselves and rarely spoke to the other tenants. Life was going well for them both. But with Gertrude's tuberculosis worsening to the point where she was unable to sit savouring the fresh air on the balcony, being bedbound and coughing up blood across their tiny little flat, until her tragic death on the 24th of February 1948 left him alone, lost, and broke. Held at Chelsea Police Station, George gave the first of two statements about his whereabouts. On the day Virginia was last seen, went missing, and was most likely murdered, he would state, I left home on Sunday the 2nd of May, about 4pm. 
I then walked down to the milk bar in Leicester Square. I did not meet anyone I knew, and I spoke to no one. I got home about 10.15pm, and I went to bed after making myself a cup of coffee. The next day, as Virginia most probably lay collapsed, paralyzed and bleeding, I got up at 7am and went to the labor exchange at 2pm. After this, George said he went to the Forum Pictures on Fulham Palace Road and returned home at 10.15pm. He kept no receipts or tickets to prove his movements and no one saw him except his landlord. On Tuesday the 4th and Wednesday the 5th, as Virginia's brain swelled with blood, George went to the cinema twice. He visited two pubs, always getting home at about 10.30pm. And at some time during that night, as Virginia died of his injuries, George said he heard a sound. At 4am, I was awoken by Dr. Wallace's doorbell ringing. Then my bell rung. I heard a car starting off from outside of the house. It sounded like a big car. I heard some voices talking in the street. I could not hear what they were saying. And then I went off to sleep. With his statement, patently a complete fabrication from start to finish, a thorough search of the flat unearthed several key pieces of evidence which George had failed to destroy in what was, quite possibly, the worst cleanup of a murder scene in history. A trail of evidence proved both his movements and timings for the murder. Hairs from the rabbit's fur were shed from her coat to his suit, to the rug where she fell, to the chair where he sat her, to the bedroom where she lay, to the balcony where she was dropped, and the steps where her twisted remains were found. With blood splattered on the mantelpiece, the impact of four hard blows sprayed droplets in long lines from her head to her stockinged feet. And with her blood free-flowing while she was still alive, it stopped when she died as dried flakes scuffed the surfaces. In the scullery sink, four damp pieces of cloth were found, still speckled with Group A blood as he had failed to fully wipe up any traces of her from the chair, the rug, the hall, the bed and the floor. In the charred remains of the fire lay the recognisable remains of her shoes. Although blackened and scorched, the leather straps held true, the metal buckles hadn't warped, the red heels were still visible, and although badly burnt, 
the shoemaker's mark and the size of the shoe were still seen on the sole. To the side of the fire, where he had dumped it in the moments after the attack, lay the hammer. Its octagonal face, identical in every detail to the blooded indentations left on her shattered cheeks and the flat steel of its face all the way to the hammer's neck was spattered with her dried blood and her fair hair. That would have been enough to convict him but found on the scullery washboard having left it after his very brief but ultimately fruitless attempt to clean up lay the one kilo flat iron he had used to cave in her skull. And being so old, rough and rusted, her dried blood had recessed into the deep pits. After a sleepless night in the cells at Chelsea Police Station, and being confronted with the evidence... The next day, on Friday the 7th of May at 10pm, George requested to see D.I. Webb and stated, I told you lies. I want to tell you how it happened. Again he was cautioned, and he made a second statement which may be nearer to the truth. Only this statement would make him out to be the victim. George said that he met her in Piccadilly. It was on Sunday night at about 10.15pm. She smiled at me. I asked her if she would like to come home with me, and she said that she would, as she had nowhere to go. We got the number 14 bus. We went home. And then we had... You know, intercourse. It's likely that this was the truth. As being a prostitute who picked up men in Piccadilly, with George looking small, thin and harmless, she may have had no reason to fear him, and it's unlikely that this was a planned attack. And with semen found inside of her, but no evidence of a sexual assault, it's hard to dispute this part. But it was after the sex that something happened and the mood changed. I went into the bedroom, George would claim, and realized I was missing nine pounds from my hip pocket. With no proof that George even had nine pounds, 450 pounds today, all we can do is to assume that either it was his and she had robbed him, that he had paid her and he wanted his money back, or that with no income of his own and with Virginia making four pounds per punter, he saw her money hidden in a shoe and tried to rob her. I asked her whether she had taken my money 
She said, no, with a grin, suggesting that his attack, provoked by her, was warranted. As this woman, who made her money by illegal means, sought to cheat him. Although, as far as we know, she had no known history of defrauding her punters. Suggesting that he gave her a second chance to admit a mistake, I asked her again, and she still said no. Only with no witnesses to any of this. It was only the two of them who actually saw what happened. But being alive, he had everything to lose. And being dead, she had no one to tell her side of the story. I got hold of her, and I hit her on the back of the head, he would claim. Ignoring the fact that she was hit on the forehead, and making no reference to the flat iron, which he later admitted belonged in the kitchen, which was at the back of the flat, and could only be accessed via the communal stairwell. She fell down, he would state. And as she did, seeing the nine pound fall from her shoe as it dislodged in the assault, I picked it up and I hit her two or three times on the face with her shoe. Although as we know, the marks on her cheeks were made with the hammer's three centimeter octagonal face, rather than her shoes, one centimeter oblong heel. His lack of empathy was staggering, as even by his own admission, I thought she was still bluffing because she lay on the floor. As blood poured down her face and pulled about her head, I pulled her into the bedroom. She was dying, but not caring a jot about her. In there, I had a cup of tea. After I'd thrown two cups of water in her face to revive her, I pulled her beside the bed. She was still alive. As I pulled the blanket over her, and she lay beside me. Which, although deeply creepy, made no sense. As in order to move her to the bedroom, he had to drag this comatose and bleeding woman out of the front room along the communal landing and beside the shared staircase, where he risked being seen by the tenants. Just so he could hide her body in the bedroom, when only he had the key to both rooms. And having admitted that he slept in his own bed, he also spent three days with a dying woman at the foot of his bed, until with the swelling of her brain having peaked, she slowly died of hemorrhaging. The death of Virginia was long and torturous, 
as her swelling brain was punctured by the shattered bony fragments of her skull. Until the pressure constricted every air molecule and every cell of her blood. Only George didn't care, as the callousness of his confession would confirm. I went into the bedroom, and she was dead. I pulled her into the front room, onto the balcony, and threw her over. As falling 15 feet, her body slammed onto the hard stone steps. A twisted mess of limbs, which dislocated and snapped. As being out of sight and out of mind. He wasn't a criminal genius, thinking that such a brazen disposal by dumping the woman he had killed on his own doorstep was the one place the police wouldn't assume that a killer would dump a body. He just didn't care about this woman, as having done what he wanted with her, he disposed of her like household waste. And having had a quick stab at cleaning up the mess, he had a cup of tea and then went to sleep. Assessed to Brixton Prison as being of low IQ, but not insane or feeble-minded. He was deemed fit to stand trial, which began at the Old Bailey on the 15th of June 1948, just six weeks after the murder. Arraigned before Mr Justice Burkett, Mr Hawke for the prosecution stated that this was nothing but a cold-blooded murder whereas Mr. Morris for the defense would claim her injuries were caused by an accident. Found guilty of murder by a unanimous jury, although Justice Burkett donned his black cap to pronounce a sentence of death, with the House of Commons having implemented a no-hanging vote on the 14th of April, which began our journey to abolish capital punishment George would not be executed. Instead, he would be given a life sentence, which he served at once with prison. But with his sentence commuted to life, being his first violent offence, and with the warden stating that he was a good man of quiet disposition, he served his time tending to the prison gardens without supervision. After 10 years inside, in December 1958, he was released and he returned to Lincolnshire where he lived with his mother. George Cyril Epton died in August 1990 and he lived to the age of 87. Up to his death, he stuck to his story that he'd been robbed 
by Winifred Virginia Mulholland and that he had justifiably taken her life. But not only had he taken her life, he had also taken her dreams of a new life in Canada. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's try that. (coughs) I was about to say, oh, I'm feeling better. Oh, dry throat. That's all that was. Dry throat. Oh, longer record today. Longer record. This is I'm recording this one two days after the last one, just because just because it's all written. So I'm just editing and then doing the next one. Oh, unfortunately, as you can probably, I will open the curtains, and all you can hear is the bellends in their little helicopters in their their little shitty aircraft. Let's open the window. There you go. Little bastards are out today, and they're they're doing circuits. They're doing circuits. Oh, oh, utter wankers. Why can't they do something with their lives? Oh, maybe I might protest at the airport. Maybe I might, oh, maybe I could buy a rocket launcher and shoot them out of the sky. Oh, it'd be worth it. It'd be worth it because let, let, let's, let's point out the truth that the, the people with little aircraft are probably arseholes. Probably arseholes in real life. Probably the classic CEOs of companies. Oh, who you just go? Oh, you've you've got your aircraft by cheating your workers out of the the money that they deserve. You utter bastards! So uh, yeah, they're out today. <coughs> oh, sounding healthy there. 
So, uh, almost gone now, almost gone, the bronchitis, which is good. My lungs are getting better. Um, I've, uh, I, I could do distances. I did 15 miles the other day and I didn't seem to cough up much, which is good. And then I did, uh, there's a hill next to me. It's not really, it's not much of a hill, but it's quite steep. And normally when I'm healthy, I can kind of just really straight up the hill. But with bronchitis, when it was, even when it's clearing up, I was really struggling and it would take a couple of attempts now i can get up with it without coughing and spluttering which is great so oh there we go uh so what time is it let's see what time is one o'clock which is great so i've finished the editing on the last episode i've recorded this one great i'm gonna go to the coffee shop in a bit uh yesterday i treated myself to some nice they do a big slab of bread and butter pudding Mm, and it's like it's one of those slabs where you could just drop it. You, they serve it you. You could drop it on a table, and you hear a, like a really nice, distinct thud when it hits the table, and you think, "Yeah, it's going to get in my belly in a second. So I did that, um, and then I had some uh, some more school cake. I don't know why people the in the bakery. There's always things <coughs> that some people just don't like, and you get that, but school cake it's like how can you not like school cake it's like oh it's just tasty and it's yummy and it's soft and it's oh there you go another twat in their little aircraft they're doing circuits they follow they follow the canal path and they do little squares and that's all that and then they they'll go home and visit their wives and they'll go oh how was your day dear did you uh did you uh, uh, siphon off some people's pensions so you could uh, spend it on your your millionaire island? And they'll go, yeah. And then I treated myself by flying some circuits in my little shitty aircraft. Utter wankers. Uh, but what they're missing out on is school cake. School cake and bread and butter pudding. I'm hoping, because it's not too late, that by the time I get to the bakery, there might be a big Belgian bun there for me. They do big ones as big as your face. If you've not been on TikTok... Um, when I was sick, I treated myself to a Belgian bun. It took about half an hour to get up the hill to get to the bakery. Uh, but I did it, and then I treated myself to a Belgian bun, and I stuffed it in my big, fat face. God, it was good. That, I think that's why I was feeling better. Uh, so that's that. What else is going on? Oh, there's a new Eva film coming out soon. Oh, yeah. Oh, Musketeers. She's in that. Oh, I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing it'll probably be 18 certificate or X-rated because anything with Eva in it is X-rated. That's just porn, isn't it? Oh, Eva porn. Oh, oh, oh Eva. Oh, see, that's uh, she'll take me to the cinema. I'll have to pay, and I'll have to buy her all the treats. I'll have to feed her her, her M and M's because she likes me to feed her M and M's. And then every couple of minutes she goes, "Am I good in that scene? Am I great?" And I go, "Yes, Eva, you're wonderful." You're wonderful. And then if I'm lucky, we have a bit of a smooch on the back row. <sighs> anyway, I'll do some quiz questions, then we'll dive in some extra stuff because we didn't get to do a lot of extra stuff last week. So question number one, there's 10 questions this week. I must have been feeling better. Question number one, don't forget, I haven't edited this episode yet. So some of the questions might not exist as had happened with last week's episode. Question number one, what was the name of the man who found Virginia's body? Question number two, where was he heading to? 
Question number three. What colour was George's jacket? (coughs) It was cough coloured. There you go. Uh, Question number four. Name one of four items on George's mantelpiece. Technically, there's five, but there's four different items. Question number six. What did George say the blood at the base of his bed was? Question number seven. What excuse did George use to explain the blood on his clothes? Sorry, that was question six. Question seven. What jobs uh, did George do when he was young? Name any any of them. Uh, Question number eight. What was the name of George's second wife? Uh, Question number nine. What job did George do when his second wife died? And question number 10, how much did he earn in benefits per week? So, there we go. Uh, I'm going to read out George's statements. Uh, uh, Chances I might balls up some of those questions before, but it's better that we read the statements. So let's read them. Um, George said, um, I think this was the first one. Yeah, this is the first one, the bullshit one. Uh, He said... Uh, I lived at 17 Finsborough Road for the past six years and I occupy the first floor flat comprising of a scullery at the back, a bedroom and a front sitting room overlooking the street. There are large windows in the sitting room and one pair of French windows opening out to a balcony over a partition of the front door uh, and along the front of the house. Um, The building still looks identical today. The French windows are still there. Uh, you can see that on the little videos uh, up to three months ago I lived there with my wife but she died on the 14th of February 1948 from consumption which is TB uh, since then I have lived there alone since the last uh, since the end of February last since the end of last February I have been unemployed uh, my last employment uh, was with Aspect and Rutland in Fulham where I work as an for about three months prior to this i was generally in good employment uh since i have been unemployed i've been drawing unemployment benefits of per week see i'm getting good at this Uh, since my wife died i have been friendly with two girls the first was frey who works at the milk bar on charing cross road that's by tottenham court road uh she has dark hair she's about 27 years old and lives in stamford hill police couldn't actually find her uh i took her back to my flat only about four weeks ago at about eight o'clock on the wednesday evening she stayed for about three quarters of an hour she stayed for three quarters of an hour that's interesting i wonder what occupation she's in uh the second girl i met through the victory club which is the victory cafe uh by a man named spikesman she's called dorothy but i don't know her by any other name she is german uh she lives somewhere in acton she also came to my flat but only on one occasion at about 6 30 p.m on the tuesday i believe it was the 27th of april 1948 i have not seen her since and i i have finished with her um other than these women uh there have uh never been any other women in my flat except the woman who comes to clean uh my mother and father visited the flat in march and they stayed for about a month so that would have been just after the death of his wife um um regarding his unemployment he says he signs on at the labor exchange and goes to the cinema daily uh he says i cannot mention any friends names other than the two girls i told you about he doesn't seem to have many if any friends 
We got on the day of the disappearance. I left home on Sunday the 2nd of May 1948 at about 4pm and went to Tottenham Court Road to meet Freya. She told me she was working till 5pm. Obviously the police went to the milk bar, couldn't find a Freya. Um, uh, but although I waited, she did not turn up. I walked down Charing Cross Road to Shaftesbury Avenue and then to the milk bar in Leicester Square. I did not meet anyone I knew and spoke to no one I knew. Um, I got on the number 14 bus at Piccadilly and went home I got home about 10.15pm and went to bed after making myself a cup of tea. Now, I think we, we used bits of this before um, with his... Uh, uh, so this is his bullshit statement. And as you you can see, he kind of... He doesn't really see anyone. He doesn't really go anywhere. Where he does go, he doesn't go anywhere that he can commit to. Um, there's no tickets that he's collecting uh, he can't show receipts so there's no proof he was anywhere wherever he says um so this is the later statement um it's kind of interesting because the bullshit statement the first one that he gave is four pages long this one is the more accurate statement this is after he's been shown all the evidence and he knows he's screwed but he's still lying this is barely a page long so the first one is quite detailed he goes on about Freya, she's got dark hair, she's 27 years old. This one is vague, and he's missing out lots of details, which is weird, but we'll dive into it. Uh, he said, um, meeting her, it was on Sunday... <coughs> oh, come on. It was on Sunday night about 10.15pm. She smiled at me. That was in Piccadilly. Uh, Piccadilly, don't forget, is, is, is an area where uh, a lot of prostitutes would pick up um uh men either on park lane we've seen that kind of junction on park lane where they meet that's kind of a good place to meet or piccadilly circus um one of the reasons why you pick piccadilly circus is a it's a high traffic area but also uh lots of taxis there and quite often a taxi would be used if you uh have a place that's a bit of a distance like like paddington like where the blackout ripper would ended up with some of his victims you get in a taxi you could go there but also you could pay the taxi driver some money and the taxi driver will turn a blind eye and then you can have nookie in his back seat so there you go it kind of saves money instead of booking into a hotel uh i asked her if she would like to come home with me and she said that she would if she had nowhere to go we got the number 14 bus and then went to radcliffe gardens radcliffe gardens is where um lynn jan and him that episode is so it's just around the corner uh then we went home then we sat on a chair then we had you know intercourse well there you go uh i went into the bedroom uh, and I missed nine pounds from my hip pocket and told her, have you taken my money? She said no with a grin. I asked her again and she said no. I got hold of her and I hit her on the back of her head and she flopped onto the right on the curb of the mantelpiece. Now throughout, I didn't put this in the episode because it throws everything off. But he kept saying that she'd uh, she hit her head on the mantelpiece. But the police couldn't find any blood on the mantelpiece at all. In fact, the only blood spatter they could find was to the right of the mantelpiece. So it's weird that he keeps going on about the mantelpiece. Uh, she fell down and I went into the back room and I came in and she was dying. Um, after a bit, I pulled her into the bedroom and I had a cup of tea. There you go. You've just almost killed a woman. Have a cup of tea. I went in the bedroom again and she was dead. This is a couple of days later. He's made a bit of a jump there. Uh, I left her there while 
Wednesday night. I pulled her into the front room at about four o'clock in the morning. I pulled her onto the balcony and threw her over. I put her bag over her shoulder. I kept the shoes. I was going to throw them down. I broke them up and I put them in the fire and tried to burn them. I washed blood up. I've never seen anything like it in my life. That is all. Uh, This is actually the second statement. He would give a third statement, which is fuller, but it's kind of just an embellishment on what he's already said. Um, John Eldred, who lived in the the basement flat, (coughs) has mentioned he came back between 9 and 9.30pm the night before. He didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything. Um, Most of what we did in the previous episode was the... um, pathologist dr donald tears statements um we used most most of that because it was kind of interesting uh, uh the marble mantelpiece in the front room um he said there were two ridged edges um he's the pathologist said i would not agree that this wound to the forehead might have been caused by coming into sudden contact with that edge caused by uh, the extreme irregularity of the wound because of the degree of violence this wound was caused by a single blow by a flat iron uh when you when you look at the wound itself it's like a flat iron is kind of it's um well it's it's a cast iron iron but it's kind of as you'd expect from an iron shape it's got that kind of um it's not oblong but it kind of comes to a point almost like a pyramid at the front so it's almost the same as that so it looks like he used the back end of it to break in a skull uh which we saw with dutch layer as as well her head was uh broken in with a flat iron um don't forget we're still in (coughs) an era where people are still using uh, cast irons to iron their clothes so um this would be something that would be regularly found in flats especially if you've got a flat that's got an open fire as well you just pop it on warms it up you can use it to um iron your clothes or you could be lazy like me and just buy clothes that you don't have to iron i can't be asked what's the point what's the point in having shirts they just get crumpled just get t-shirts and then they 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 lose their creases within uh, within seconds. Um, what we got? What we got? What we got? Um, Detective Inspector Webb uh, said he arrived at six forty a.m. Gained entrance to the middle room on the first floor. So a uh, back room was the scullery, middle room was the bedroom, first room was the front. And as mentioned in the episode, you could only get access to those by by going out and using the hallway, uh, the landing. So. Um, not not great which is why it kind of doesn't make sense why he would uh have the body in the front room and then deliberately move it to the his bedroom because only he has access to the sitting room so it doesn't make sense he could he could have just had the conversation if he, he knew his landlord was turning up maybe he just have maybe that was his fear was the landlord would turn up and see the body but you know, you could just have the conversation with the landlord in his in his bedroom. And say, "Oh, I'm here. I've got the money here. Keep the door locked." You know, there could be something sinister there. It is kind of weird, isn't it, that he has the body at the foot of his bed, and that he keeps her there while she's dying for three days. Mm. There's always been something weird and unsettling about this this thing. Um uh okay detective inspector webb yes he said uh, the accused was standing there (coughs) 
just dressed in the jacket and trousers and they were exhibits uh, 23 and 25 uh he notes that they were blood-stained uh he said uh george said i suppose you'll hear about the murder the D- the di said what murder uh george said the one outside which is weird because there's another statement here where they knock on his door and george even though he's wearing his clothes he pretends that he's been asleep and he's like oh i don't know what's going on i didn't hear anything i've just woken up it's like yeah bullshit um uh the di said i'm gonna have a look around your flat you better come with me uh george unlocked the door to the front room and we entered the french windows overlooking the street were fastened i opened them and went to the balcony i noticed blood stains on the balcony floor and broken pieces of costume clip um i tell you what let's dive into uh the evidence that was found so um that they'd a linoleum rug that was there i hate that word because it's hard to say a rug that was there human blood was found on the rug um and there was evidence that he tried to clean it up but he'd done a terrible job on the chair itself there was human blood was found so he hadn't cleaned up that either don't forget he said literally four days to do this and even though he would have got rid of the body at 4 a.m the police didn't turn up till about half six. So he's got another two, two and a half hours to at least do a clean-up. Instead, he didn't. He went to bed. Um, on the chair, human blood was found. Flakes of blood on the right arm of the chair. Um, also, uh, the rabbit's fur was found on there as well. The flat iron exhibit one was found. Human blood was found on the back of the handle and inside the hollow position of the handle. Um, because, as mentioned in the episode, because it was old and rough it's hard to clean and when um <coughs> the <coughs> police scientist there looked at it he said it looks like it had been put under the sink for a bit but it hadn't it'd been scrubbed a bit but not too well you would have needed to have had it in the water for about 10 minutes in hot water and really scrubbed it thoroughly because the blood was really ingrained into it uh, hammer uh, was exhibit two um that was find found just to the right of the fireplace so that's most likely where the attack happened uh, most likely she was standing up at the time when she was attacked and he was standing in front of her um that was found on the floor literally where he'd used it exhibit five four pieces of cloth were found with traces of human blood group a which had been used for cleaning up these were found under the sink and they were still wet so obviously the cleanup was pretty much after he dumped the body uh although with them being wet it could have been a couple of days we don't know we don't know how wet they were uh the rug exhibit six was heavily stained with blood in the corner and also human hair matching the victim um the rabbit's fur hairs from her coat was everywhere it's one of those coats one of those fur coats that just molts everywhere so everywhere she went it molted there was um it was on his his jacket on the floor on the carpet on the balcony everywhere she'd been there was uh that rabbit's fur coat um exhibit 12 were the shoes they were partially burnt um but still visible you could still tell uh kind of what they were um uh, the 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 red dye used in the heels was still visible as well um a trail of blood from where she'd been attacked to the bedroom where she was dying so with her body still alive she was still pumping out blood but slowly so there's a small pool of blood and then uh 
from the trail from the bedroom along the hallway or the landing to the front room and the balcony um, there were patches of dried blood so by that point she died she wasn't producing any more blood but when she rubbed against things dried blood would kind of come off there um on the balcony was because she only wore cheap um costume jewelry which makes sense if, you, if you're a prostitute and you're going out you don't want to get robbed of kind of nice jewelry so you wear something that looks nice but not too expensive um part of this was found uh, in the flower box which was on the balcony but also the same pieces were found underneath her uh, where her body was found so they knew that there was a connection there uh they could find kind of uh, mild drag marks across the balcony uh obviously bits of hair bits of um bits of blood as well on the balcony as well and of course uh exhibit 22 <coughs> and 23 her tra- his trousers which had her blood on it it's like absolutely stained everything um really wasn't a, a cleanup it's it's this is the weird thing about him it's just like it's hard to determine what he was doing what he was up to i don't i don't think he set out to kill her um either he's telling the truth and he assumed that she had robbed him uh maybe she did rob him maybe that was the thing maybe he has something in his past where he's kind of upset about that and that kind of really sparked him to want to kill her um or maybe as as mentioned in the episode maybe he saw that she had money on her maybe he gave her the money and in the same way that we saw with french fifi in the so strangling episodes that she keeps her money in her shoe which was something that a lot of prostitutes would do you'd have a handbag with you but you know that if someone's going to rob you they're going to steal your handbag so what you do is you put your notes in your shoe and then you unload it later on so maybe he did pay her maybe she put the money in a shoe maybe he saw that uh maybe he, she didn't know that he saw that and then he thought i've had my sex i'm gonna get my money back you know maybe is that kind of a bell end so uh um as mentioned a diary was there they looked in the diary there was all the kind of she mentioned about all the clients she'd had and the money she'd made but there was nothing in there about him so clearly she would write it things in her diary afterwards not uh not during um the thing that might be it because i've pretty much put <coughs> as much as i could into this uh episode uh his committal was at west london magistrates court on the 8th of may 1948 and he was remanded until the 15th of may he was in dock for a total of three minutes he was unshaven and wearing a blue double-breasted blue suit a white shirt and was constantly turning a black hat between his fingers asked if he was able to instruct a solicitor he replied i have nothing but a few pounds i leave that up to you which is a little bit cocky um medical assessment was done on the 16th of june 1948 he said he was average at school he served in the army 1921 to 26 which is i couldn't find anything about the army he seemed to work on farms all of his life uh, he said he was discharged with a bad character so that's the weird thing if you're pretending that you're in the army why would you make up a lie which makes you out to be bad uh his employer said he was satisfactory uh he was married shortly separated afterwards and since 1937 uh, he has been living with a woman who he said was known as his wife so he married her but 
technically it wasn't it wasn't a proper marriage because he was already married to uh, uh, his previous wife. He hadn't divorced her. Um, no history of disease in his family. No history of trauma in his early life. No history of insanity in the family. He was described in prison as a quiet person. Um, IQ of a boy age 12. Uh, uh, and that was pretty much it. We'd done the... Um, yeah. Done the sentencing. Um, it, it's kind of odd that... Um, uh, 1948 you kind of forget that the house of commons had already had the vote on abolishing the death penalty in 1948 so 14th of april 1948 um so the judge had to do what he always did which was to put his black cap on to pronounce a sentence of death but everybody knew that he wasn't going to be um sentenced to death they they had to go through the process and then uh then it would be uh, commuted by the Home Secretary to penal servitude, which of course uh, was just 10 years at that point. So, um, yeah, died uh, August 1990, aged 87 in Horncastle in Lincolnshire. Uh, we pretty much don't know anything about him after that point. There's nothing in the papers, nothing, he doesn't seem to have committed any other crimes, just seems to have gone off the radar, to be honest. So, uh, I think that's it. Um, yeah let's do the quiz questions uh before i forget um right here goes don't forget i haven't edited the episode so i may be missing some stuff uh question number one what was the name of the man who found virginia's body albert stamp question number two where was he heading to earl's court station question number three what was what color was george's jacket was grey question number four name one of four items on the mantelpiece there was a clock an empty medicine bottle a small statue i I believe it was a giraffe uh, and two frameless photographs of his dead wife question number five what did george say the body at the base of his bed was it was red ink Question number six. What excuse did George use to explain the blood on his clothes? It was nosebleeds. Question number seven. What jobs did George do when he was young? Well, I gave away one of those, didn't I? Uh, A butcher's boy, a casting packer and a tractor driver. Question number eight. What was the name of his second wife? It was Gertrude Bloomfield. Question number nine, what job did George do when his second wife died? He was an engineer's assistant. And question number 10, how much did he earn in benefits per week? Uh, so it's 24 shillings a week. But uh, he said he st- he said that uh, Virginia stole nine pounds off him. Now, just to put that in context, uh, that's 180 shillings. So he's earning 24 shillings a week of which he has to pay his rent out of that and he says that she stole nine pounds off him which is 180 shillings which is the equivalent of seven and a half weeks dole money so there you go there you go a bit of maths at the end everybody loves to have a bit of maths at the end especially if rachel riley's doing it don't tell either i said that right that's me done um have yourself a good week folks i'm off to the bakery to fill my fat face full of cake Yes. Have a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. 
Lots of love. Thank you for supporting the show. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash press on and use code press on 25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press on falsies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.